So if you're if you're new, this is fun actually doing the sermon uh, on Zoom. I don't know if it's fun for you, but I'm getting a kick out of it. But um, if you're new to the whole sacred writing situation, um, here's a here's a look at what they look like. It's worth noting that the New Testament, what we're reading from today, is only one small part of the entire set of, of sacred writings. So this New Testament was uh, informed by all these other books. So Jesus and the people who, who were uh, featured in the New Testament or who wrote it uh, were all informed by this stuff. Uh, and uh, all the people who got excited about Jesus were writing in this this smaller portion. And in the New Testament, you've got four versions of the teachings and deeds of Jesus uh, called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, followed by the book of Acts, which is the account of how the Jewish Jesus sect spread from Jerusalem throughout the Roman Empire by way of synagogues that were scattered throughout the empire called the Diaspora. Uh, and that was all before it morphed into something maybe a couple of centuries later that was eventually called Christianity. So our portion today, read uh, by Lydia really well, is uh, from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, whoever it was that wrote Luke also wrote Acts, it seems like, but neither one identifies its author. So probably Luke was a companion of Paul, maybe a physician, perhaps a Greek-speaking Jew of the first century. All this, I think, is worth noting because despite how old the New Testament is, you know, a couple thousand years old, how culturally removed it is from our time and culture and place, um, there's actually a lot we do know, but there's also a lot we don't know, like exactly who wrote the Gospels. So when you're trying to decipher what any piece of writing means, the first question you naturally ask is, well, who wrote this? Uh, the fact that we're just making educated guesses about such a basic question, I think is kind of telling. I mention this because uh, many have said that the meaning of scripture is clear, is, is plain to the average person, and that scripture delivers something called absolute truth, which we can grasp with certainty. I, and I, I don't know, after all these years of messing around with this stuff, I, I think that has more to do with controlling what a group of people believe than it, it is a natural conclusion you'd reach by actually reading these various writings that we call scripture. So is it fascinating? Yes. Is it intriguing? Can be, um, but often not clear, which makes the posture of certainty, I think, a little bit of a stretch, maybe even a little foolish. So a more modest approach is to look for inspiration in these writings. So let's try that today with our reading uh, expanded from what uh, Lydia read. I'm adding a few verses uh, to start it off. Hence, Jesus said, to what is the kingdom of God comparable and what shall I compare it to? It's comparable to the seed of a mustard plant a man took the seed and tossed it into his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air found shelter among its branches. And he spoke once again, What am I going to compare to the kingdom of God? It's comparable to yeast. A woman took it and hid it in three sata of flour and waited until the whole lump of dough was risen with the yeast. So in the ancient uh, Near East, where these uh, scriptures came from, 
Everyone lived in a place that was ruled by a potentate, a king, a warlord of some kind. And who that ruler was made a huge difference in people's personal lives. The, the ancient Israelites were fond of uh, wondering in this kind of a context, what would it be like to live in a realm that was completely under divine influence rather than the rabble in charge around here? So that, that imagining is an act of political, cultural, and spiritual imagination. Jesus, a teacher in ancient Israel under Roman occupation, is weighing in on this question, often with these folksy comparisons called parables. A parable is casting light on an unknown thing by comparing it to a known thing. So this pair of parables, a man tossing a seed into a garden that becomes a tree providing shelter for birds, and a woman kneading yeast into a lump of dough, to make bread to feed a whole bunch of people. The lump of dough, a, a, a stada, I think it, it, it is the Greek word, was, was quite a large quantity. So this, these two parables are expressing a very Jewish idea that humans are made for companionship, for partnership with God. And, and this happens in the everyday. It happens in gardening and making bread, that sort of thing. Also, there's an expansiveness to the good realm of God. It's not a realm of scarcity, but of plenty. So both of these parables speak of the kingdom of God, the good realm of God. We sometimes use the term the kingdom of God, the near relatedness of God. It speaks of this phenomenon as an emergent, not an imposed phenomenon, but something more like a fermentation process. So I like this picture of the gardener tossing. Another translation says casting the mustard seed into the garden. It's like these little seeds are so fertile, so eager to get growing. You can just toss them into the garden and they find a way to germinate and grow. You, you can imagine people walking past this garden, um, taking no notice of a little seed laying on the ground as the germination commences. The warmth and the moisture of the soil softening the outer casing of the seed welcoming little tendrils sprouting out that function like stakes in the corners of, a, of a, a tent in a campsite, securing the wannabe plant in its location until over days, weeks, months, it's forming into a mustard tree that the birds can make a home in eventually. So it's an emergent process, the good realm of God. And in its earliest stages, it's, it's hidden except to a few who are eagerly awaiting its emergence, the gardener or the person working the leaven into the lump of dough. So can I make an obvious interpretation? Uh, good things often emerge in this way over time. Um, you'd say nonviolently, like, like puppies, plants, children, like movements to affect social change. And this is what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus is saying. That's quite a departure from the reality of the ancient Near East, where one ruler is assassinated, another takes over, and the armies impose the ruler's will on the population. Also, um, just sidebar, um, can I offer like a, a suggested correction for what I think is a common misleading interpretation of this parable? 
how how it features a woman the the second of the two parables the woman kneading the uh, yeast into the dough uh, Christians including uh, progressive ones have a, a bad habit of making their version of faith look good by making ancient Judaism look bad so it's very common to point out how Jesus often features women as the point of comparison with God or with God's, God's good realm, which is true. A lot of parables are like that. They do feature women. But then these interpreters make a rhetorical move to make Jesus look even better by emphasizing how ancient Judaism was so hard on women. So I, I've made this move myself as a as a commenter um, over the years. It's, it's really a kind of a cheap trick of rhetoric to make your thing look good, highlighting the negative things in something that isn't your thing. In this case, it's, it's also quite unfair. So the Old Testament also features women who were active agents for divine purpose in the world. Uh, Sarah is a real player. So is Hagar, Rachel, uh, the book of Ruth features a woman and her mother-in-law as its heroes. In the Song of Songs, an erotic love poem, the dominant voice is actually the woman's voice, not the man's voice. Lady Wisdom is a player in the divine playing field. At the same time, the Old Testament shows many signs of having been written in a society ruled by men, favoring men, privileging men. Often men are named when women are not. But the same is true of the New Testament. Yes, Jesus had some women as prominent disciples, but he chose 12 apostles, all of them men, as like founding figures of his movement. Uh, my daughter Amy had a, had a touche moment uh, talking to someone who was asserting that the Bible proves only men can be ordained because the 12 apostles were men. She said, yeah, well, they were all Jewish too, Buster, which leaves you out. So I thought that was pretty good. I was pretty proud of her. Uh, so the Bible is an historically and culturally conditioned book. It's shaped by the culture of its time and by the historical period that it's written in. So I experience it as more than that, but it's not less than that. But every other thing ever written by human beings has this trait. It's, it's culturally and historically conditioned. We are all historically and culturally conditioned. I mean, in my case, my preconscious brain was formed in the 1950s. My mother couldn't have a checking account in her own name when I was born, like legally. 94% uh, of the world's wealth was in U.S. hands the year I was born, which meant it was controlled by people with my skin tone and gender. So especially my preconscious formation leaks out from time to time as I manifest my male pattern maleness pre-consciously formed in the 1950s and early 60s. Um, but we can also rise above our historical and cultural conditioning. I mean, those are my moments of inspiration. Same with the Bible, to find inspiration from it. Look for the places, and there are many, when these writings bear witness to something far beyond the cultural historical conditioning of the writers. So to that end, I'd, uh, I'd offer props to this particular uh, parable. If I were to send Jesus a fan email, it would say, thank you for this parable that speaks to me in my time. Not all of your parables speak to me equally. 
The ones about kings doing this and that are harder for me to identify with, but these two that picture the realm of God coming in this emergent and nonviolent way like a germination or a ferment, fermentation process, I mean, this really works for me. I'm, I'm inspired by this. So let's draw this together. There's a, there's a real value in imagining what the world would be like under divine influence rather than under its current power brokers. If we can't even imagine something different than what is, how can we begin to make room for its changing? Positive change begins with imagination, which is the power of hope. Every movement uh, for good in the world, um, uh, with the marks you'd say of divine energy, has been fueled by hope, by people imagining a better world that doesn't exist yet. You know, there was a time when even imagining a world without slavery was impossible for most people. We're still trying to imagine a woman president here in the United States. Schitt's Creek is an act of the imagination, a town where people find a way to love and accept each other, and they squabble, and they can be ridiculous like people can be, and, and, and be real people, but there's this profound love and acceptance at work. Uh, Ted Lasso is uh, imagining a world where macho men can be vulnerable and strong women can be in charge and support each other. Uh, acts of the imagination are required to bring new things into being. So we use our imagination all the time in the service of fear. I mean, I do this. I, I get a little shred of troubling news and I hop on the imagination train and within three seconds, I arrive at some vividly imagined catastrophe, uh, catastrophic thinking, it's called, but it uses the imagination. So credit the power of our impressive imagination, but we can also use this power in the service of hope. We can imagine our world um, on a grand scale, on a modest scale, on a, on a micro scale, coming into increased divine influence say like a loved one that we are worried about. We can use our imagination to see them going from bad to worse, their health, their addiction, whatever, but we can also imagine them doing better, if only to unexpectedly thrive or be fruitful despite their suffering. So that's where these two little parables, I think, shine. Uh, they inspire me. Um, they invite us to imagine things going better like a man tossing a seed into a garden that germinates, takes root, and all the rest over time, not easily visible in the early stages, especially to those who aren't looking, or to imagine things going better like a fermentation process when yeast is folded into a bowl of flour and water and salt and covered with a cloth and maybe put in a warmer spot and then rising mysteriously from within until it's ready for baking. What if this really is a trait of the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God comes in this emergent fermentation-like way, if, if we can imagine it that way, we'd be on the lookout for it more. Uh, some years ago, I, I bought a, a Hyundai. I think it's called Hyundai. I, I didn't even know how to pronounce it, Hyundai, Hyundai. Um, 
didn't know they existed, this uh, car brand, until I did a little research and found out they're less expensive than Toyotas, but up and coming in terms of quality. So I got one. And then I saw them everywhere. As soon as I was driving a Hyundai, I saw them everywhere. Here's a Hyundai, there's a Hyundai. What happened? I became attentive to Hyundais. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. This is what I want for myself as a supplement to my brain's capacity to imagine little seeds of bad news taking root and growing into a catastrophe. I would like to become more attentive to the realm of God emerging like a germinating seed tossed into the soil or like the hidden fermentation process of yeast worked into a lump of dough. The extraordinary emerging mysteriously from the ordinary. Give me eyes to see when that's happening. Okay, let's close as we um, often do with a little time of meditation. I'll try guiding us in that here from your TV screen. Um, we'll do a, let's do a visualization meditation uh, based on trying to picture a tree emerging from a generating seed. And any kind of tree will do um, in any kind of setting. There's no like right or way wrong of doing visualization. A lot of times when people are doing a visualization meditation, they think, oh, it's got to really be vivid to work. No, I'm not very good at visualizing things. Um, but you don't have to be for, for it to be helpful. It's just a way to focus our attention, exercise the imagination for a couple of minutes. So begin, if you'd like, by taking in and releasing a few nice, relaxing, deep breaths as you get comfortable where you're sitting, eyes open or closed, whatever you prefer. Go ahead with a few cleansing breaths. Now, if you will, picture a seed in some nice, warm, moist soil, great dirt. The seed settles nicely in the soil, and it's like watching a time-elapse video as you notice the seed starting to germinate, sending tiny roots down into the soil. And little green shoots forming above the soil from the seed. Those little green shoots drawing in the energy of the sun and the roots drawing up the moisture and the nutrients from the soil. Now over the next 30 seconds or so, just let the time elapse video speed up as you watch that little plant form into a tree, eventually with a trunk and branches and leaves, any kind of tree you like to imagine forming until it's full grown. Go ahead.
And now picture whatever creatures you like finding a home in and among the branches of your tree, birds, squirrels, maybe a tree house for the kids, whatever. Watch as that tree becomes a little community, a home for many living things over the next half minute. Go ahead. And now I'll close by reading our portion from Luke 13 one more time. Hence he said, To what is the kingdom of God comparable, and what shall I compare it to? It's comparable to the seed of a mustard plant. A man took the seed and tossed it into his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air found shelter among its branches. And he spoke once again, What am I going to compare to the kingdom of God? It's comparable to yeast. A woman took it and hid it in three sata of flour and waited until the whole lump of dough was risen with the yeast. Amen.